that $500,000 home is, you know, 550 and but now they only qualify for 375. So they are out of the market. They've been priced out of the market uh, through interest rates and elevated real estate prices. And they're getting into a high priced rental now because those are skyrocketing at the same time. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I'm grateful to have, once again, mortgage originator, loan professional from Radius Financial, Jeff Pylon. You may remember him from episode 52. I encourage you to go back and listen to that, to hear about his story and his arc of success and where he got to where he is now. But today we're going to talk a little bit different. We're going to talk about the market, the market that's happening right now here in May 2022. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Always enjoy uh, providing content to your show. And uh, today, yeah, the uh, the market is something that that we should discuss. Changes are slowly happening, and there's several reasons for that. So, um, you know, I'd like to just touch on on what we're seeing here, and also reference some uh, some very very uh, enlightening data and research from around the country in real time. I'm not talking about you know, how the market was three months ago, or even two months ago, I'm talking about over the last 30 days, and what we might expect to see going forward. So let's do that. Let's do that. And let's put a timestamp on it, because that's important, right? What was happening 90 days ago, certainly isn't uh, what's happening today, which means, you know, 60 days from now, if someone's listening to this, or, or even beyond, it's probably very different. So here we are talking on Zoom on May 17th, 2022. Jeff, with your sage wisdom, again, episode 52, please go back and listen to understand the credibility behind this. What is going on? So uh, as everyone knows, uh, it's been a seller's paradise in real estate, um, you know, for for a while. Ever since the pandemic, um, you know, demand was uh, extreme. It still is. There's still a um, a huge demand and a very limited supply in the housing market. So, you know, that's economics 101. When there's more demand than supply, prices are up. Uh, sales happen quick. Bidding wars, uh, over asking, you know, all of the above that we've seen. And actually, even today, especially here in the Northeast, we still, we're still experiencing that, but there is a storm brewing. And um, I think most people are aware now that the Federal Reserve is on a mission to try to control inflation, which is uh, running hotter than it has in 40 years. Uh, housing being a key component of the inflation gauge. So, um, so long and short of it is, you know, 2.87, 3% 30-year fixed rates uh, beginning of January. Today, five and a half, rapidly approaching 6%. So rates have doubled in the last four months. Um, never happened before, but of course, back in March and April of 2020, when the pandemic hit, rates had plummeted faster than they ever did. 
So that was one of the things that created the demand because money was very easy, very, very cheap. Um, so home affordability, which is a key thing that we're going to talk about today, uh, home affordability, even with rapidly rising uh, prices, uh, was at all-time highs. So home affordability index. So it's an interesting barometer of you know, how much and how affordable it is for the, for the average American to, to buy a home. So the components to that are, number one, interest rates lowest interest rates ever the past two and a half years. So that helped with affordability, obviously. Um, somebody can afford a higher mortgage at two and a half percent than they can at 7%. So no rocket science there. The second thing was wages. So wages uh, have been going up because there's a shortage of workers. All we hear about, all you see when you drive around is help wanted signs, not only in the service sector, but across you know, really all industries in the country. Um, a lot of people, uh, when they get the stimulus uh, from the government, because naturally government shut the, shut the country down on a pandemic health crisis, uh, a lot of people haven't gone back to work. I don't know if anyone's noticed that. I sure have. Um, so there's a shortage of workers, so they have to pay people more to work. So wage inflation is part of inflation also. Uh, but higher wages help home affordability index, right? So low interest rates, higher income. And, uh, and then the third thing that factors into it is prices. So before the prices really rocketed, um, you know, early 2020, you had all three of those things. You had low interest rates, high wages, and, you know, increasing prices, but not to the point where, where it was uh, dampening demand, right? So fast forward to today, May 17th, 2022. Uh, Interest rates have essentially doubled. Home prices have gone up, uh, depending on your market, you know, twenty percent in a year, and that's happened several years in a row. So, you know, we just have to look back to some of the transaction we just closed three three years ago, and and these people's houses have almost doubled in value because of all the demand. Um, so now you have elevated prices, elevated interest rates, wages are still uh, high but they have not kept up with the other two. So a precipitous drop in the home affordability index uh, in the last 30 days. Um, I know if you were in some, if you were talking to some folks now, some especially realtors or sellers who have been doing uh, you know, fabulous, you know, they'd say, well, the, you know, the market is great. <clears throat> um, but every time this has happened in the past, it has led to a correction, and I'm not I'm not predicting you know how home prices to crumble, but uh, but certainly uh, we are starting to see some moderation, um, and it is because the buyer pool is diminished uh, and diminished quite a bit, particularly at the entry level, the first time buyer, which typically starts the whole domino process. Um, and where, into, I, where are they going? So their, their home affordability, they're now priced out of what they otherwise wanted? Of course. So where they're going is nowhere. They're going into rentals because, um, you know, just, just in my experience, I have, you know, a whole basket of pre-approved uh, people been, been trying to find a house for, you know, a year now and say they qualified for $500,000 back in December and we're having trouble finding a home or getting outbid, which was more often the case. Well, now, four months later, 
that five hundred thousand dollar home is you know five fifty, and but now they only qualify for three seventy five. So they are out of the market. They've been priced out of the market uh, through interest rates and elevated real estate prices. And they're getting into a high priced rental now because those are skyrocketing at the same time. Um, they are, but uh, that's another, maybe we can touch on this later in the podcast, but um, there was always that buy versus rent um, analysis that you would do for people. And for a long time, uh, buying was a better option. Uh, now renting maybe isn't a better option for these people, but it's the only option for these people. Right. Right. And it takes them out of the market for 12 months. So if a lot of those buyers step away for 12 months and the sellers start to come to the market saying, oh, no, I think I might have missed it. You have maybe a healthier market, but you may actually have a potential swing, too. You could. Um, and that remains to be seen. We'll see what happens. There's a couple of um, there's a couple of reasons the Fed is uh, doing what they're doing. So the Fed, the Federal Reserve's charter, number one is to control inflation. And number two is to try to provide conditions for maximum employment. So right now we're clearly, um, the unemployment number is, is one of the lowest on record. Uh, it seems like everybody that wants a job either has a job or can get a job tomorrow. But how do you measure that against your earlier statement where you're, you're seeing that people didn't go back to work, right? There's still a, a high demand, but yet is unemployment as low as they say it is? Well, um, so in order to be included in unemployment, in the unemployment figures, um, you have to be looking for a job. So you're technically unemployed if you are actively looking for a job and don't have one. But the problem here is, the, is, the, is another piece, it's another metric that they measure called the labor participation rate. The labor participation rate has dropped quite a bit since the pandemic because people have taken themselves out of the labor pool. So yeah, so you, you might have, you know, however many million unemployed people, but uh, the majority of them want to be unemployed and they're not looking for a job. So they're not counted in that number. Huh. See how that works? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So here we are with a, an inflation that's running out of control. Fed steps in and starts pumping the brakes. They start pumping the brakes. Now here's, here's, uh, um, I've already explained why. So the, the Fed really has two, they only have two tools to, um, to meet their mandate. Uh, one of them is money supply. Um, when the pandemic hit, the Fed threw uh, asset purchases. I don't want to get too technical here. Do but it, no. Do the, it. The Fed essentially printed $8 trillion out of thin air. And the way they did that was they, they're buying their own, they're buying the Treasury's mortgage bonds and they're buying mortgage backed securities, which are mortgages pooled into uh, bond securities. So, um, so they printed all this money. They pushed a lot of it out into the economy to keep it going during the lockdowns. They provided stimulus and then more stimulus and then more stimulus. Um, so essentially, and I'm not going to get political here, but essentially after that initial uh, fall of, I mean, spring of 2020, um, you know, six months later, and then after the election earlier in in 21, they kept stimulating when they didn't need to. And that has, that has definitely contributed to some of this inflation. Uh, now they're in a position of, oh, 
we thought inflation, inflation was going to be temporary. I don't know if anybody remembers Jerome Powell, who's the Fed chairman, saying last year, uh, this, this inflation is running hot, but it's temporary. Trans, transitory. Transitory, right? Yeah. yeah. I think so, it was Yellen, too. I think she said it. Uh, of course, yeah. So, um, well, now, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't sweep it under the rug anymore. It's not transitory. No, it's not. It's clearly not. <laughs> it's here, and it's inflicting pain. Um, first quarter GDP in this country contracted 1.4%. 1, 1. So the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of contracting economic output. So we'll see at the end of June what that number is. But if it's negative again, then we are right in the middle of a recession as we speak, um, even though you know some people may not feel that way. Um, so that was the money supply. The the blunt instrument that they have to control inflation. Um, and it's like a sledgehammer. There's no way to delicately do it is uh, interest rates. So they yeah. slashed rates to zero and now they are on record. Um, they're gonna raise rates the next five meetings they have and they're gonna raise them. They typically raise rates a quarter of a percent. They're gonna raise rates, they're on record at least the next three or four, 50, uh, 50 basis points or half a percent. Uh, which they just did earlier this month. Um, so, and that's never happened before, correct? Not at that level. So the last time they raised rates fifty basis points was in in two thousand. So it's going back a long time. And now they're on record saying they're going to do it multiple times this year uh, because obviously in two two thousand we didn't have the inflation problem we have now. We haven't had this kind of problem since the late seventies, early eighties when. When the Fed did the same thing they're doing now, and they pushed things to uh, 19, 20 percent just to just to control the uh, you know the inflation that was that was really ruining the country. The prime rates going up, 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 shattered, shattered. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the prime rates going up. So they're doing the best they can to mitigate the damage that's already been caused right it's not political it's it's monetary it's monetary policy but it's monetary nonetheless so it's economics 101 micro and macro so what happens next well the, what happens next is and and i think um and people can look this up um several several of the um, extremely influential members of the uh, federal reserve board are on record in the last 60 days saying specifically saying hey the only way we're going to be, get inflation under control is to not only pump the brakes but go full reverse thrust on um, trying to get housing prices um, from skyrocketing and the other interesting thing is they want they they're on record saying they they need the stock market to go down so Americans don't feel they have as much money and they curb their spending or bring their demand down. And if demand goes down, which it will, um, then that hopefully uh, gets inflation under control because less demand, less activity, prices need to adjust uh, to lower demand by coming down prices on whatever we're talking about. So the private market, you know, the public, publicly traded companies need to contract so that we feel that we have less money, we have less discretionary income, we have less flexibility 
therefore there's a spiraling effect which creates what they want which is lower yeah. prices yeah so they're you know um out in public they'll they'll make these statements like that and they have made them anybody can look it up but they're also talking about a soft you know quote unquote soft landing um but it's very clear that and it's it may already we it may already be in it it's very clear that they're going to cause or have caused a recession it's just uh, how how severe is it going to be, um, and that remains to be seen. Um, but not to get off topic, I know we're trying to talk about the real estate market and, and where we think it's going. Um, interestingly, interestingly enough, after you know just you know years now uh, of uh, multiple bids and this and that and and uh, really frustrating for buyers and uh, obviously mortgage lenders because. On any given weekend, I could have ten people trying to buy a house, and usually they go. Usually they go for ten. Maybe sometimes one guy gets accepted. Um, well, now, after especially the last two weeks, Mark, this is how recent this is. Um, even in the Northeast, and we are in a super hot market, as everybody knows, because there's very limited inventory and there's fifty people trying to buy every house. But one of my real estate partners, um, who works with your office as well, very active had an open house on a very reasonably priced under 500 under 450 house in the town of marshfield and marshfield's been super hot as you know and i checked in with her i checked in with her on uh monday and i said how'd your open house go did you have like 20 offers and she goes you know i don't have any i said what do you mean a, a, a house for 425 and you have no offers and the house was not a palace but it wasn't a teardown either it was something somebody could a first time buyer could go in there and and live there she goes yeah um so i had seven people come through which was a lower number than you typically think she followed up with the with the seven uh, agents that brought the buyers um two of them said no the house wasn't for us the other five agents said, oh, um, yeah, they love the house, but their pre-approval was from back in, you know, December or January, and their lender didn't update it for them. So they used to qualify for, you know, 475, 450, and now they only qualify for 350, but they weren't told that before they came and looked at the house. But then when they said, hey, we want to make an offer, and the agent called the lenders and said, I need an updated pre-approval for Mark Stiles. And they said, oh, yeah, no. Uh, how much is the house? 420? No, they only qualify for 350 now because rates are five and a half. And we did our original one at three. So, so when I heard that, my ears perked up because if it happened to her, it's happening <laughs> to everybody else, particularly at the low end. But this could also apply for somebody that qualified for 800. And now they qualify for 650. So they're out of the 800 market for the time being, right? Right. So that upgrade is not going to happen. That's that's really interesting. And just like that, it comes to reality, doesn't it? it well, it does. So um, the next, um, you know, the next three months, six months, can be very interesting to actually see what happens. Um, and I mean, I'm in it every day. You're in it every day. Um, so it remains to be seen. But we'll we'll um, we'll keep our eye on it and uh, monitor the situation now. Uh, the good news, I don't know how good a news it is, but um, the, there, there is a limit. So, you know, 1979, when uh, Federal Reserve really started jacking interest rates to control inflation, um, there was very little debt. Com the, the country 
didn't have a lot of debt back then because they typically passed balanced budgets or close to it. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as crazy as it is now. Our national debt now exceeds $30 trillion. And it's like one and a half times our total economic output, our GDP. 150% of GDP is our national debt. So we're levered up. We're levered up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, hasn't been that high since World War II when we're just trying to, you know, survive, right? right. Um, so now when you look at the percentage of the national budget to pay interest, um, it's like 20%. And that's at super low rates, close to free. Treasury, treasury yields were, you know. 1%, less than 1%. Well, now every time the Fed bumps the discount rate, all interest rates follow that. Mortgage rates, car loans, student loans, and treasury yields. So, so if they have to roll over, you know, however many trillion dollars in debt that they have at, you know, 1%, but now it's coming due and they have to borrow that at 5%, what does that do to that number? So, so if things slow down um, as hard as they as they could with massive interest rate increases, at some point, the recession's either going to be severe enough, but the other thing that could keep the lid on rates longer term is that the government won't be able to pay their own interest payments. So yeah, just think about that. So the, the Fed's only got that one tool, right? Um, at some point, they may have to reverse that and start lowering rates again. When that happens, I don't know. You know, nobody knows. But um, but you know, nineteen percent interest rates probably not because the country would be bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. So there's not an actual cap that the interest rates can go, but there's a logical cap of where they could go, where the balance is outweighed on the other side of the scale. Yeah, yeah, and um, and actually, after the after the rise that we saw from January through up to two weeks ago, every single week interest mortgage rates were going up. Uh, well, in the last two weeks, they've uh, they seem to have found their range. So, Good. don't expect certainly don't expect them to go back down to where they were, or even go back down at all. Um, but they have flattened out, and you know, overall, that's a good thing because now people can at least plan and have an expectation if if rates remain somewhat stable from here on in because the market's already priced in all these future uh, rate hikes that are that are you know going to happen but the market's priced that in so so now I think it may have found you know a happy place for a little while uh, but that place is in the fives not in the twos right so wh where do you see values going in this in certain areas that you're working in primarily I don't, I think values, um, I think values are, um, the, you know, the huge increases I think are probably over. I think values are going to stabilize, um, whether they go down or not as anybody's guess, but I do have some interesting, um, some research that I did for this podcast. Cool. And yeah, so one thing, <clears throat> You know, new home construction, new new construction only makes up ten or fifteen percent of the of the total real estate market in the country. But it is it is a you know substantial metric, right? So there's a group um, that is 
they do a month, they do a survey um, of home builders all around the country. And this group is called the John Burns Real Estate Consulting Group. And they provide a monthly snapshot of more than 300 builders across the nation. Um, and in the last 30 days, this one was from May 12th. So this was last week. Um, demand is slowing, namely entry level due to payment shock, which is something we just talked about, right? Uh, the other thing the builders are saying is that investors are severely pulling back. So people want to go out and buy an investment property from a builder, a new one. And those, um, those have basically come to a screaming halt because investors typically, there's a lot of cash ones, but there's also a lot of people that borrow money. And if the price is high and now the rate is so much higher, then, um, then the, it doesn't look like such a good investment if they have to pay more for the investment uh, because there, there is a limit to rent. I mean, they have to go by market rents in the area. You can't just say, well, I need, I need this huge rent number to make my deal work. Well, the market's not going to support your rent number. They're going to go somewhere else. Um, and the third thing, which is, again, what we talked about, the ripple effect of rising rates on the entry-level buyer is now starting to hit the move-up market. Um, so, you know, that was telling. So home um, builder confidence and buyer confidence um, are both in the tank. Like the, the builder confidence has gone down substantially because these people used to have waiting lists. And what they're noting in this latest survey is that um, the waiting lists have reduced and sometimes gone away. So say somebody had 50 houses to sell, they had 70 buyers, 20 people are on the waiting list. Well, now those 20 people just said, forget it. So the, so, the, so the lists, and I'm talking people from Texas to Colorado to California, um, to the Northeast, everywhere, the South, um, significant buyer shifts in the last 30 days, people canceling contracts, um, people um, reducing the specs on their house. Hey, I can't afford those extras that I wanted. That's if they stay in. So this is happening. It's happening right now. Right. Uh, real time. Real yeah. time. And those are great metrics, too, because those are very analytical businesses. Right. You know, it's hard to track, you know, mom and pop, you know, selling to Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Yeah. And you have like these spreadsheet, you know, analysts who are running models and real time numbers on it. That's that's very, very telling. But I wonder if with the amount of demand that was in the marketplace, if it doesn't dissipate completely, do we have a healthy market for a period of time? Or do we start to see an imbalance going the other way right away? Well, that's, that's certainly the hope is that um, supply and demand uh, get you know, more in sync than they've been in, in a couple of years, because, um, you know, that's a more normal market, right? So instead of 30 people trying to buy your house, maybe you have three or four, and that's okay. That's, that's historically where it's been. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I can't say this enough because, <clears throat> because it's been so good for so long for sellers, um, everybody thinks nothing can change, right? It's always going to be like this. This time it will be different, right? And that's been said 
at every turn in the market. This time it's going to be different. Well, I don't think so. And I am not wearing a tinfoil hat. I'm not, a cons- I'm not running a conspiracy podcast here and I'm not being doom and gloom, but you have to look, people have to look at the leading indicators. Sentiment is a huge leading indicator. It doesn't say what happened a month or two ago. It says what I feel like right now and people base their actions on their sentiment. So that's one, the, the affordability index. I mean, that's a no brainer. If, if affordability index is through the floor and I've seen it with what I do, then that is going to have an eventual impact on the market. Let's compare the affordability index. And I think you have the research for this, but going back in time, when was the affordability index at its best versus its worst? Do you have that information? Uh, I think like I'm... people, cause I think so much of this is emotional too. And people yeah. need to feel comfortable with, you know, what they're doing. Like if you said, oh, this is what it felt like in 2006. I think a lot of people, at least the professionals who are in it every day, like you and I would have a better understanding of what the market feels like. I know affordability was was very good on the incline of COVID, right? So of the spike of COVID, low interest rates, high wages, and the prices hadn't started spiking yet. Very good. But where was it? Where was it very bad? Was it 07, 08 that we would yeah. be? Yeah. So the last time uh, the affordability index was this low was... Um, Oh, let's see. well, it's it's actually never been this low. Right. Uh, there was a brief point in 2014. I don't know if you remember 2014. Um, you know, after after the financial crisis, uh, they slashed interest rates to try to get out of it. Um, yeah. It it worked. Um, so in 2012, you know, interest rates were in the threes. Um, by 2014, they were up in the five five and a half range, almost as high as they are now. And that um, coincided with, we didn't have a recession, but we had really slow growth. I don't know if you remember. Um, So the affordability index in. So a similar scenario, right? So we can kind of look back on the past and project the future, right? So if if they took dramatic action with the meltdown, cut rates, created a, an environment, a frenzied environment and said, okay, well, we need to, we need to raise rates. So there in 2014, boom, we're up to five and a half. We have affordability index, not so great. Then what happened? They started cutting rates again, right? Yeah, they did. They started cutting rates again. Um, and then by 2018, if you remember, um, because even after, you know, years of, of um, sort of modest recovery from the financial crisis, um, they kept this quantitative easing, which right. was which was um, very accommodative monetary policy. So they were they were printing money, nothing like during the pandemic, but they were doing these um, these uh, asset purchases, which is treasuries and mortgage bonds. Um, so that pushed down interest rates. And then in 2018, they started to try to unwind that because, because they were like, well, it's 10 years after the financial crash. Uh, we can't keep doing this. So they started to raise interest rates and taper back asset purchases. And I don't know if you remember, stock market crashed in 2018. It was the last time. So, so then immediately when the stock market crashed, they backed off. 
and stop. And then they started, they started with the very uh, easy money policy again. So affordability went down again right before they started backing off that in 2018. And then, you know, once the pandemic hit uh, and they slashed rates to zero and mortgages went down into the twos, but prices hadn't really taken off yet, um, that was when the affordability index was the highest it's ever been. Right. So going back through time, this is simply a blink of the eye. We've seen it. We've been there. We've lived through it. And we've survived and came out on the other side. So maybe fasten your seatbelt for a, a bumpy ride, but we're going to make it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, there's a couple things different from the uh, the financial uh, crisis. So last time there was a housing bubble, and I'm not saying we're in a housing bubble right now because the reason prices are what they are is strictly supply and demand. Not enough houses, you know, huge demand. Well, now demand is starting to taper off just because of the cost of money. So it's really not as complicated as, as if you really think it through. There's only a couple of variables here. Now, the last time real estate crashed was because you had loose money, not because of cheap interest rates, because uh, anybody could get a mortgage. It was all these crazy, you know, money was so loose, you didn't need to, you didn't need to prove anything. So credit quality was really, really weak. And then eventually everybody who was going to buy bought and then they didn't pay their mortgages and there was foreclosures and all of a sudden you had a glut of housing and nobody to buy them. So real estate crashed. I don't think that's the case now. Supply and demand now are still so out of whack. So I think, um, I think what happens more likely, Mark, is that things moderate. And, you know, my hope is that they normalize, uh, but the, the Fed's going to really dictate how far they go with interest rates. My thought is eventually they have to stop because um, the slowdown now, I mean, I don't know, you know, when, when this thing whole spreads like a forest fire throughout the country, which it is, and pe less and less people can buy and you don't have all these buyers, then, I mean, logic just tells you that rates, I mean, uh, prices need to moderate. Um, and I think they are. I think if you can ask some of the top realtors around um, based on the last 30 days, not three months ago, um, you know, I can see some, some increase in prices. But I think even the NAR economist that, um, forget the gentleman's name, but, you know, he's, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he's on record saying, uh, you know, real estate might increase 5% in the next 12 months, not 25%. Yeah, but it's still increasing, right? It's still... Well, Again, but economists, you know, they have they have their degrees. They do a lot of research. Most of them are pretty smart guys, but they don't know. No, it's like you and I don't know. But, but we have a guess, and we right. can look at the leading indicators. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how see how it plays out. What do you see for loosening up um, the credit the credit piece of it? Do you see that coming into play when we get to a point where the market starts to create a stalemate, right? We get healthy, but there's not enough activity. Do you see them, the exotic loans coming back into the marketplace to spur some new buyers and different? Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I know that, I know that um, those are out there. Um, certainly not at any kind of level that they were because they've been, you know, the, the stuff that happened before got regulated right off the table. So they can't, nobody can even do that if they want to. Um, but now you are seeing some sort of exotic boutique type financing that's a little bit outside the box. Um, 
we don't uh, at Radius. We're more of a straight, you know, straight up compliant type lender. So we don't. Um, if it's if it's in gray area, if it's more towards the black side of the gray area, we just don't offer it. Um, but what we are seeing, people are trying to manage their, um, you know, manage the the rise in rates. Okay, how can I how can I lower my payment? So it used to be that nobody, and I never recommend it. Um, paying discount points, which is upfront money to lower the interest rate. So for example, say, say somebody's rate's going to be five and a half percent. Well, they can pay, you know, a point, which is 1% of what they're borrowing. So on 500,000, it's five grand. We're starting to see people say, Hey, can I pay two points and get five instead of five and a half? Um, sure. If that's what you want to do. Well, it makes sense if they're getting that house for 500 versus 510 too, right? So if you can build that yeah. into the equation, maybe you could get a little creative with yeah. you know, the team, right? So you get the agents involved and the buyers and sellers and let's, uh, let's do something creative to help, help yeah. spur some of this. Yeah, and the, the other thing we, we're seeing more of, which um, we didn't see any of for the longest time because it made no sense. Um, back when interest rates were super low, uh, adjustable rate mortgages. Yeah. Um, so back even as recently as, you know, a year and a half ago, a year ago, um, the rate on an adjustable rate mortgage was higher than it was for a fixed rate mortgage. So who would do that? And um, nobody did because it didn't make sense. Well, In now inverted yield, right? Is that what they call yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, pretty much. Well, now it's um, now it's flipped back to, um, you know, where it should be. Uh, in that adjustables are uh, in some cases uh, significantly lower, like a, a whole percent lower than the fixed rates because the fixed rates have gone up so fast. So we are seeing more people look at adjustable options. We're seeing more people pay points. Um, and we're also seeing more people um, as difficult as it is right now, um, lower their target market. If somebody was looking at seven, they were comfortable borrowing you know, 550 at three. Now they're not comfortable borrowing 550 at, you know, five and a half. So we are seeing some people just, um, just sort of back off on the number. So now they're, they might be in the 600 market instead of the 700 market. May switch towns or what have you to do what they want. Sure. Yeah. Right. That's, that's really interesting. And it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting six months, two months, three years, who knows. Right. But it's, it's something that we've, uh, I'll be, it's something that maybe historically hasn't been exactly like this, but there's been shades of, of this and we've experienced it. And again, you know, we could help navigate through that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the one thing that um, it's not, it's there's so much that, you know, inflation is complex. There's a lot of things that contribute to it. Housing is one of the major ones. They, they look at the rent average, average rental uh, levels. Uh, price of homes. Um, so housing is a big piece of the inflation read, but it's not the only piece. So, so my thought is um, there's still going to be inflation probably for quite some time on the energy side, um, the wage side. You can't just start cutting people's pay because it's already hard enough to get someone to work. Um, and they so, still have to go to the grocery store and the gas tank, right? Yeah, and the and the grocery store and the gas tank, and then you have black swan events like 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 the the war over in Ukraine. Pandemic. Uh, well, the pandemic was one, and that caused, you know, that caused um, 
what it caused, but now on the inflation side, uh, the you know energy, we can talk all we want about solar and wind and clean and renewables, but the country runs on oil. Right. I mean, the, the world runs on oil and that's not gonna change anytime soon. Um, and you take somebody like Russia out of the oil market through all, now we've banned them, the Europeans are banning them. So take Russian oil off the table and until we uh, get some more supply through other avenues, domestically, Middle East, wherever, um, that's why we're paying five bucks a gallon at the pump. Um, and that's another huge, huge inflation. I think it's the main driver of inflation is the cost of, of fuel because not only is it the cost of fuel, that leads to increased prices because everything has to be transported. And a company who just doubled or tripled their transportation, I'm talking shipping, rail, trucks, um, they're not going to absorb that. They're going to pass it on to, to the consumer. I mean, that's what they do. They, if they, they have to or they're out of business. So let me ask you this, working with real estate referral partners, what are you, what, how are you helping your real estate referral partners? How are you talking and guiding and explaining? Well, yeah, and that's a good question because that's every day. And um, seems like every day I get another question about something that I hadn't thought about before. But I think as, as mortgage lender, the best thing that I can do to help them is to make sure that their clients who they've sent over to get pre-approved are up to date. So the last thing I want is to be the lender on the other side of that situation I mentioned before, where I haven't updated somebody since December. Now they found a house. Now I get to tell the realtor, oh, I haven't updated them. They can't afford that even though. So, so we, are, we are constantly in contact with our pre-approvals um, to keep them up to date, uh, not only to make sure their situation credit and income wise hasn't changed, but just to say, hey, you know, it's been 90 days, things are really different now. Here's what you're looking at. Here's what you're pre-approved for now. So then passing that on to the realtor so they can they can target a different market for those people if there even is one. Um, and then secondly, um, like I had yesterday was, you know, somebody did get their offer accepted this weekend, which was awesome. But um, again, I hadn't talked to the guy since November. He qualifies, but he hates five and a half. So so between him and the realtor, they're like, what can we do to bring this payment down? And it's like, well, you can do a, you can do an arm at four and a half. Oh, great. Great suggestion. Hadn't even thought about that. So on the finance side, that's all I can do for them. But it's mainly just continuing to communicate and keep things up to date. So everyone is better informed when they go to make their, uh, you know, make their home purchase or their search. So welcome back. Adjustable rate mortgages, three, five, seven, ten right? Safe, safe amount of term. What about, what about seller concessions though? Can you, can you foresee an opportunity for seller concessions where the seller helps pay points for the, for the buyer? Well, yeah, I mean, that's always been something that um, regardless of the, um, regardless of the market and the pricing, um, if, a, if there's a buyer that, <clears throat> that, um, you know, has a certain amount of money for their down payment, but then they're talking about lowering their rates with points. So now the closing costs go from you know, seven grand to potentially 20 grand, depending on how many points they want to get into, but they don't have the money or they don't want to part with the money. Then it's back to the, the, back to the negotiating table. Um, where, I've seen it, where I've seen seller concessions not be a problem where the seller just says, no way, I can get, you know, I have 10 people that want to buy my house is 
just to negotiate that price, negotiate the seller's net first, say, I want 600 from my house. And then once that's off the table and the buyer says, yeah, you're going to get 600 for your house, the realtor can say, can we make the price 610? You're going to net your 600, but if we blow the price up to 610 and you pay 10,000 towards their closing costs, it's, it's going to just make it smoother for them. Most sellers don't have a problem with that. Most, I say, um, because they're netting what they agreed to. But I think, the, I think the thing that still falls on its face and kills deals immediately is if someone goes in with their offer saying, we want you to pay $10,000 towards their closing costs, because obviously it's still a, very much a seller's market. The seller's like, I'm not paying anything. Matter of fact, I'm not fixing anything. You're buying this as is. Right. Right. And well, it'll be nice if that came back to earth a little bit uh, with yeah. this. You know, I, I welcome a healthy market. I welcome uh, the ability for the buyers to to be on on an equal footing with the sellers. But so when you in, when you increase the purchase price, there's no the guidelines allow for this, right? This isn't something that you would be uh, hiding from the bank. This is no, something. no, 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 absolutely not. So it's, it's all compliant. Um, and there's limits to it. You know, sometimes the maximum seller contribution is 3%. Um, and then there's other programs like FHAs, um, or if someone has a bigger down payment, seller contribution can be up to 6% of the sales price. So that even 3% more than covers actual closing costs. Um, what I do field questions all the time on uh, in these situations is, hey, can we blow the price up and then the seller give the buyer cash back at closing? Maybe, maybe something needs to get fixed and the seller's like, I'm not going to fix it, but I'll give you cash back at closing. And that's not allowed um, when someone's getting a mortgage. Any seller credit has to be applied towards actual closing costs, escrows for taxes and insurance. There can be no check back to the, uh, to the buyer from the seller at closing. Right. And it's all laid out and spelled out and explained to the bank so that they can review it and they can see it and understand the value of the property and their asset and their security therein. Jeff, thank you again, man. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, bringing the wisdom to people. Folks, again, I want to encourage you to listen to episode 52, where we talked about all of his story and his trajectory in the business as well as some of the historical implications that probably feed really well into here. Um, and you'll hear on there the question that we always ask about karaoke. And I want to report back that Jeff was going to sing Johnny Cash Highwayman as his karaoke song. And folks, I heard him sing it live in a karaoke and he killed it. So it was awesome. Jeff, how do people get in touch with you if they want to work with a professional such as yourself? Sure, yeah, uh, jeffpylon.com, um, just my name.com. That brings you right into a secure radius website, my page. Um, phone 508-922-5232. Those are really the best ways to get me. So great. Thank you. <laughs> thanks again, Mark. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. 
And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Title. Secure Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Secure Title, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.